Hello, my name is Tristan Reynolds, and welcome to the Rambler Interview Podcast, where the Rambler staff has fascinating and engaging conversations with members of the transy community. This week, I talked with the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Doctor of Political Science, Michael Cairo, in order to better understand what may be the defining foreign policy challenge of our time. What the hell is going on in Iraq and Syria? We discussed his area of speciality, the Middle East, and especially Iraq, focusing mostly on the 2003 American invasion and the chaos that resulted from that invasion leading up to the crisis in Iraq and Syria today with ISIS. Before we go into the interview, I want to give you a word of warning. Because we're talking about such a complex area, we're going to do something a little different. We are going to actually interrupt the interview at certain points and give you this sound. That sound will signal that we're going to stop for a second and explain a particular concept, uh, event, or person that is important to the narrative but might not be well known to a general audience. Now, I want to tell you on a personal level, I have been very personally, emotionally moved by the plight of, of the Syrian refugees. And, and I think it's important to, to understand how that situation happened. And, and I think for someone who isn't familiar with uh, the history, uh, and, and I myself am not incredibly familiar with it, uh, it's important to understand how we got to this point. But that's enough about that. Dr. Michael Cairo. I am with the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Doctor of Political Science, Michael Cairo. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm pretty well. I understand, and this is going to be a labored transition though, that the Middle East is not so well. Uh, one could say that, depending on your uh, opinion in the Middle East, I guess, okay. but yes, certainly. I'd like to start by saying we're here today to discuss uh, Iraq and the uh, political situation there. So I'd like to start with where we are now, mm -hmm. which is, uh, is it fair to say there's a war going on in Iraq right now? Uh, I think I would describe it more as a conflict, but I think it's fair to say there's a war. Certainly you have uh, insurgency in the north especially with the so-called Islamic State, uh, and, and uh, you have for quite some time had various sectarian conflict that has dominated the Iraqi political social scene. Um, this goes back to uh, the British Mandate and the establishment of Iraq. What was the British Mandate? After World War I and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the victorious Allied powers, principally Britain and France, divided the former Ottoman territories that we now think of as the Middle East into respective spheres of influence, which they called mandates. The agreement that divided the Middle East between them, mostly by drawing lines on a blank map and by not considering the history or political, social, and ethnic and religious realities of the region, was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, so named for the civil servants who drew those lines. So, while these mandates were technically to be overseen by the League of Nations, a precursor to the modern UN, Britain and France had more or less unfettered control over their respective territories. Specifically, the territory of Iraq fell under British control, where they installed a puppet king and manipulated the internal politics of the country. While there have since been several changes in governments over the years, 
the borders of modern Iraq still conform to the lines drawn on a map to create the British mandate. Okay. I want to get into that history, Mm -hmm. but um, first, can you sketch out for me what the situation is, because you uh, you mentioned the Islamic State, but then also mm-hmm. sectarian conflict. Yeah. So who who are the players right okay. now? The players are essentially, uh, in simplest form, three different groups. Okay. You have Sunni Muslims, which are located in the so-called Sunni Triangle, centered sort of around Baghdad in the center of the country. Okay. You have Shia Muslims located mainly in the south of Iraq and you have Kurdish Muslims located in the north of Iraq. Uh, These three groups have essentially made up the state of Iraq over time. Uh, To say that they're completely separated is sort of a misnomer because there are obviously blurred lines where they share space. Um, But uh, for a period of time as well in the past Iraq had Jewish and Christian groups, but those groups are pretty much rare, if not non-existent today. Okay. Is is it fair to say that, uh, in terms of the conflicts going on in Iraq right now, mm-hmm. those groups are somewhat at odds with each other? It, it's fair to say that, but again, it, it, it's similar to the conflict in Syria, you have, for example, Sunni Muslim groups. There, there's. Let me let me go back. There's diversity within these various groups. Okay. It's it's not okay to let's say lump all the Sunni Muslims as opposed to all the Shia Muslims within uh, Iraq or within Syria. You've got a variety of Sunni groups. Not all Sunnis are supportive of the the Islamic State. And so you've got more moderate and, and, and other groups within those uh, various sects. But I think it's fair to say that in the history of Iraq, there has been at least uh, some, if not a lot, of resentment by the Shia and Kurds against the Sunni Muslims in the state because Saddam Hussein was a Sunni Muslim. Uh, mainly a secular Sunni Muslim, and he used his position and his authority and power as a way to provide patronage to Sunni Muslims, oftentimes at the expense of the Shia and Kurdish Muslims. Um, And when Nuri al-Maliki, the Shia prime minister, came in uh, after the war in Iraq, and the 2003 war in Iraq, um, you saw sort of a reversal of fortunes, where he began to use patronage and power to um, give Shia Muslims an advantage vis-a-vis the Sunni Muslims especially, um, at, in a sense, a payback okay. for the past. Who is Nori al-Maliki? Nori al-Maliki was the first prime minister of Iraq post the American invasion of 2003. As a Shia Muslim, he represented at first to the Americans a hope that Iraq would not be swallowed by sectarian conflict. After about five minutes in office, however, al-Maliki proved that he would, in fact, make the sectarian conflict in the country worse. Perhaps most notably to our discussion here today, his government came to an agreement which allowed the Kurdish population in the north to have a mostly autonomous regional government, and a peshmerga, or militia, 
separate from the formal Iraqi army. This regional government has become a practically de facto independent state, and as the Iraqi state tries to recover from a series of ISIS offenses towards Baghdad and retake parts of northern Iraq currently under ISIS control, the Kurdish Peshmerga has been on the front line of that conflict. There's a lot of stuff I want to touch on. There. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, but the, the first thing is you brought up uh, Syria, saying mm-hmm. that there's a somewhat similar conflict there. Well, similar in the sense that there is sectarian sectarianism is okay. at the root of the conflict, yes. Go ahead. Um, but one, one of the things we've seen recently is that uh, the Islamic State, or, or ISIS, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, stretches between both Iraq and Syria. Yeah. And the conflict has sort of amalgamated itself, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. into a sort of general Mideastern conflict. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a, it's a wider war or a wider problem or wider challenge, however you want to put it. But okay. yes, it, it, it certainly uh, falls into more than one state. Uh, and sectarianism, uh, Mark Lynch, who is a uh, professor of political science and Middle East expert, has argued that sectarianism is the major challenge of the Middle East. Um, and so the sectarian issues that the Islamic State is concerned about or is part of, rather, um, is touching upon multiple states within the region. And so what's happening in Syria impacts, in a sense, what's happening in Iraq. There is an interdependent or interlinked connection between the events and how those events play out. Okay. Who are and what are the goals of the Islamic State? The Islamic State variously called ISIS, ISIL, or Daesh, is a militant Islamic fundamentalist group with the stated goal of establishing a caliphate, or Islamic theocracy, across the Middle East and eventually the world. They subscribe to a particularly violent and apocalyptic interpretation of the Quran and Hadith, focusing on prophecies of the final battle between the forces of righteousness and evil. The fact that they aren't exactly the good guys seems to escape them. ISIS has established a more or less functioning state centered around the city of Raqqa and are fighting to maintain a sizable territory in both Syria and Iraq. However, recent offenses, led by the Kurdish Peshmerga forces but comprised of groups including the Iraqi and Syrian armies, American air power, a various assortment of Turkish forces, and possibly Russian military assets, have pushed back Islamic State fighters from their territorial high point a few years ago. Regarding how those events do play out, and this may be a somewhat unfair question, Mm -hmm. um, but how bad is it? How bad is it? Well, I would imagine if you are located within the so-called Islamic State, it's really bad for you. Um, I mean, we hear reports of the kinds of things that the Islamic State is doing and has done to people. Um, You know, so... it's difficult to make an assessment as someone who is here in Kentucky as to how bad a situation is for somebody else. Okay. Uh, it's all relative. But at the same time, I can tell you that the situation is quite precarious and quite unstable uh, You know, throughout the region. Would it be fair to say that it is more unstable now than it has been in the past? What past are you thinking about? Yeah, um... So correct me if I'm wrong, 
But it seems that the 2003 American invasion, coalition American invasion of Iraq served to really destabilize the whole region. Is that fair to say? I, I would absolutely agree with that. Are we currently trending towards more destabilization, or are we slowly... Is the region slowly becoming more stabilized? Or is that a bad uh, Well, I, think, I, I don't think you're seeing stabilization coming in the region at all. I mean, I, okay. think, I think the destabilization is the word of the day, so to speak, for the Middle East. And I, I totally agree with this statement that the 2003 war in Iraq led to a lot of the instability that we're seeing. Um, and you might argue that it wasn't so much the war, but our lack of preparation for what we did once we got there. Okay. Um, you know, personally, I was opposed to the war, but there are some who would say, well, the war itself wasn't a problem. It was the so-called exit strategy or how we dealt with the problems that emerged from the war or the fact that when we went in, we really didn't have a plan for the rebuilding or assistance in rebuilding of a government Okay. Uh, throughout that. So let's, uh, let's take a look at that history. Mm-hmm. We had in the nineties uh, invaded Iraq, Operation mm-hmm. Desert Storm, right, and then we left basically, and and the Hussein government was more or less intact. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say that we left because after the nineteen ninety one Persian Gulf War, we through the United Nations set up a series of basically measures of containment. Okay. During the 1990s, the Clinton administration referred to a policy of dual containment. The idea was to contain both Iran and Iraq, the two countries that we saw as threats in the region, to prevent them from creating threats. Okay. As part of our operations there, we were involved with the UN inspecting Iraqi materials to ensure they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, having no-fly zones in the north and the south to protect Kurdish and Shia populations from Saddam Hussein and his government, as well as using airstrikes and air power when Saddam Hussein got out of line okay. uh, throughout that period of time. So to say we were totally out isn't, isn't correct, but to say that we didn't have boots on the ground would be a, would be a closer to correct statement. Okay. Um, you mentioned inspections for uh, weapons mm-hmm. of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what we thought Hussein might have had? Because I know back in the 80s he used, uh, I believe, sarin gas. On yes, the, chemical the gas population. on the Kurdish population in the so, 80s. What were we looking for throughout that policy of containment? Well, in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, we were concerned that both Iran and Iraq were developing various weapons of mass destruction, okay. uh, biological and chemical weapons first and foremost, but then the nuclear question that, of course, is part of the question with Iran today. Okay. Um, but the main the main issues were initially biological and chemical um, uh, for Iraq, and as you said, Iraq had used chemical weapons in the past against the Kurdish population, its own population, if you, you know, within the borders of Iraq. And um, we were concerned throughout the 1990s about Saddam Hussein continuing to develop these programs and becoming stronger. What people often forget is that in the 1980s we supported Saddam Hussein in Iraq against his war with Iran. What was the Iran-Iraq War? 
The Iran-Iraq War was an extraordinarily bloody conflict between Saddam Hussein's Iraq and revolutionary Iran for regional supremacy in the Middle East. However, the conflict was so remarkably violent that both states ended up exhausting themselves, and neither was able to establish the hegemony they were after. And they also forget that Saddam Hussein had built, by the end of the 1980s, one of the largest armies in the world as a result of our support and other countries' support throughout the world um, during that war with Iran. And so at the end of that war, we thought we could cultivate him, move him back within the fold of international relations, and okay. create a partner in the region. Well, that didn't happen. And then we got worried about his potential as a military threat in the region, not necessarily to the United States, but to our ally Israel. Okay. and a threat to stability in the region if he had the potential ability to gain weapons of mass destruction, either chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. Okay. So we've talked a bit about Hussein. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, briefly sketch out for somebody who doesn't know a lot about the history? How did Saddam Hussein happen? How did he come to power? How did he happen? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you know, th this, you have to go back to the British mandate for a moment. Okay. When the British mandate was set up after the Sykes-Picot Agreement and in the, in the after World War One in the interwar period, you had a situation where Iraq was essentially um, created with a ruler on a map. There wasn't any real, you know, let's figure out what belongs in an Iraq. That's how you end up with Kurds and Sunni and Shia together, okay. um, thrown together under a British mandate. The British basically put a, a king on the throne that did their bidding. And uh, when the British decide to get out of the Middle East, in essence, after World War II, uh, that king's position is precarious and there is a military coup in the 1950s. Following that military coup, there is an internal military coup associated with the Ba'ath Party. Now, the Ba'ath Party was nominally socialist and nationalist. It was mainly nationalist. It was the idea of creating a strong, secular Iraq. Okay. Uh, not particularly religious. Now, Saddam Hussein was a member of the Ba'ath Party. He was a high-level mem high member of the Ba'ath Party. But he was not the first leader of Iraq within the Ba'ath Party. There was okay. a friend of his, Abu Bakr, who was basically leading, and he was the president of Iraq. Well, Saddam Hussein was, was pretty manipulative, pretty cunning and clever. He eventually maneuvers to gain control of not only the military but also the intelligence services so that he was essentially the guy in charge of all of the national security apparatus in Iraq. Okay. This made it easy for him to push his friend aside and take control in uh, the late 1970s okay. of, of Iraq. And then he ruled with an iron fist. Um, he was a megalomaniac for lack of a better term. He was suspicious of all things and everyone. To argue against the 2003 war in Iraq is not to argue for Saddam Hussein. He was a bad guy, um, to put it quite plainly. Um, but that was essentially his rise to power. And then the United States, in a sense, f facilitated that rise when the Iranian Revolution occurred because it, it was a couple years after his rise to power that that happened. What was the Iranian Revolution? The Iranian Revolution was an uprising in Iran which overthrew both the 
sort of democratic government, and the reigning Shah, or king. The revolution ended with a group of Shia clerics, led by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who imposed their own strict form of theocratic government on Iran. Subsequently, Iran fought a war with Iraq. And Saddam Hussein uh, becomes a nominal leader in the region because he was battling what all of the moderate for lack of a better term, moderate Arab allies, countries like Saudi Arabia and others, saw as the main threat, Iran. Um, so, if I'm hearing it correctly, by the time of the 2003 invasion, mm-hmm. Hussein had been in power for something like 30, 40 years. Is that... Yeah, it would, it, would be, it would be about 25 years uh, okay. to 30 years. Uh, depending on whether you want to you want to count the time he was close to the center of power as well. Okay. Yeah. So, the British mandate happens in the late 19-teens, early 1920s. Mm-hmm. The British leave in the late 1940s. So there's, if I'm understanding correctly, there's only about a 20-year a period where Iraq is a state that's not controlled by either a, a foreign power in the British or by Saddam Hussein. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would argue that even without the British there, the British maintain somewhat loose connections and pressures on Iraq. Okay. And the United States also helped to fill a gap within the region uh, to some extent, particularly because of oil okay. in the region, that would suggest that even... Um, independence wasn't totally free. Okay. That there was still a nominal amount of pressure and control within the within the state from external powers. Okay. Um, throughout that time. Even. Yeah. Uh, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, but Iraq was, was constituted as a mandate, uh, as yes. basically British lines on a map. Yes, absolutely. So, and you can see that if you look at the map, because the lines are so straight yes. in certain areas of Iraq. And, and that's simply, diplomats took a pencil and a ruler and drew out what the mandate would be. Okay. So, uh, in your judgment, is it fair to say that Iraq was a somewhat artificial state? It was absolutely an artificial state. Okay. Um, if, if you were going in and really trying to uh, work with the local populations, I think from the beginning, the Kurds would have said they want their own state. The Kurds want their own state today, so that's that's that would be a surprise. And there would have been at least some Shia in the south of uh, Iraq that might have wanted to share a state with Iran, and some that perhaps would want a separate state of some kind. Okay. Uh, we oftentimes forget the Shia are really the majority population in Iraq, not the Sunni Muslims um, that took control with, with Saddam Hussein. Would it be fair to say that when we invade in 2003, mm-hmm. we topple the Hussein government, mm-hmm. and we then try to set up a, um, a reconstruction government. Is it fair to say that, considering how artificial Iraq was in the first place, that was maybe not the best way to go about it? To go about what? Getting rid of Saddam Hussein? Uh, or to setting go about up the reconstructing uh, Iraq as it, as it existed along the current borders. Um, 
That's a difficult question because I'm not sure what you could have done to create a different kind of state at that time. Okay. Now, to go back a little bit, though, if we want to talk about some of the big mistakes that were made in 2003 and with the war, the biggest one you have to start with is debothification. Uh, the idea was that when we went in there, the United States basically made the decision that anyone associated with the Ba'ath Party or the Ba'ath government would be removed from the government. Now, if you were a person in Iraq who wanted a job, let's say the postal clerk, or even just working at the postal office, you're not even the clerk, you were required to be a Ba'ath Party member. Okay. By doing this, we created a huge unemployment situation on the streets, which created resentment against the United States. In addition to that, we also removed any expertise within the government and within the bureaucracies that was available. Okay. We basically gutted the whole thing. And on top of that, we didn't have a good ability to control a lot of the weapons that were available. And so then you start to get insurgency, and you start to get some people while in insurgency that are just angry about their economic situation created by the war. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, the original insurgency wasn't particularly ideologically motivated. It was just kick out the guys who took our jobs. I would say that it's both, that you had some people involved in the insurgency who were involved for economic reasons and resentment, and you had some involved in the insurgency that were involved for ideological reasons. Uh, such as keep foreign powers out of our country. They've been mucking things up for centuries. Okay. So we're starting with a, a, be fair to say it's a fairly nationalist insurgency, yes? Um, I would say it was a mix of nationalists, but there were also religious insurgents at the time, so I wouldn't identify it simply as one or the other. Is it fair to say that now we're mostly seeing a... um, a religious or, or ethnic sectarian conflict in Iraq. Yes, but, but I want to be cautious about labeling it simply religious okay. because I don't want to create a broad brush here of it's a war of Islam against Islam or Islam against the West or anything like that. Because I think that if you look at the so-called Islamic State, many would argue they don't represent Islam. And they represent either a perversion of Islam or a fanatical ideological idea um, out there. So so I want to be careful about that. But at the same time, yes, there is a strong religious element to the current insurgency. Okay. How did we get from that initial insurgency Mm -hmm. to this more ideological the, conflict. the irony is this, this sort of evolved out of Al-Qaeda. Um, there was Al-Qaeda in Jordan, and to go even more ironic, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq before our 2003 war. The idea that Saddam Hussein had links with bin Laden is a myth. Uh, bin Laden would have had Saddam Hussein at the, one of the top of his list to get rid of as a government because he was secular. So uh, Al-Qaeda in Jordan basically moves into Iraq and becomes Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And out of that insurgency and that movement, you get a smaller movement that becomes essentially and evolves into the so-called Islamic State. 
even more extremists, particularly as al-Qaeda in Iraq starts to decline and starts to face battles from the United States that encourage its decline. So, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is... This is a very complicated situation. (laughs) That is exactly what I'm saying. This is a very complicated situation. It's complex. There is no easy answer. The idea that we could go into Iraq and fix it or that we could fix it in the next in this election or fix it next year is not something that we can really really even begin to start to understand. The idea that we can fix the Middle East, which is an idea that's out there, is a um, really a myth. It's a complicated situation. You know, it also involves this idea that we know better than people who've lived there all their lives too, which is which is very problematic. So I'm on the younger side. I don't really remember mm-hmm. much of the debate around the original 2003 invasion. Yeah. You mentioned this idea of, of fixing the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And I do vaguely remember President Bush saying we'd bring democracy right. to the Middle East. Right. That's the fix. From the Bush administration, Bush 43, his, his view was just that. You've got to remember that this is post 9-11. And post 9-11, fear is high of another terrorist attack. You've got sort of a a, a politics of fear, uh, a societal fear going on. And Saddam Hussein has been a problem for the United States for quite some time. If you're a policymaker, what, what do you do with him? And you've got to remember that George W. Bush uh, believed wholeheartedly in American power as a force for good. In other words, that you could take the military and you could transform societies and particularly transform them into some kind of a democracy. And in that process, if you created democracy, it would bloom and that blooming would cause other democracies to bloom in the region and ultimately democracies are more cooperative than non-democracies and therefore you would have a more stable and peaceful Middle East. The thing that George W. Bush and the neoconservatives forgot was that democracy doesn't always give you the answers you want. Uh, A perfect example of this is in Palestine in 2006 when uh, George W. Bush insists on an election in Palestine because they have to be democratic and Mahmoud Abbas, the president of Palestine, says, wait, this is a bad idea. An election isn't necessarily good and and Bush pushes, pushes, pushes for this and lo and behold they have an election and Hamas wins and the Bush administration says, wait a minute, that shouldn't happen. What is Hamas? Hamas is a combination political party, semi-government, and militant organization which controls the West Bank of the Palestinian territories. They are both Islamist and nationalist, and seek to throw off Israeli control of the Palestinian territories, mostly by declaring their intention to wipe Israel itself off the map. But that's democracy. And so, you know, the idea that democracy can fix the Middle East, in a sense, was discredited by the neoconservatives themselves. Assuming, of course, that you want to fix the Middle East, which is a whole other big question or problem to go into, as to whether we should be, as a country, going out and either fixing other countries in our image, in a sense, or in a way that we think they need fixing. 
Okay. So are you saying that we invaded Iraq with the idea to turn it into a Western-style democracy? I think that the Bush administration had that in mind, that they thought that they could create in Iraq a Western-style democracy that would foster some kind of peace and stability. Yes. Okay. How do you think that worked out? (laughs) Problematic, to say the least. Uh, You know, we... Nuri al-Maliki, as I mentioned before, uh, Shia, he becomes the prime minister and he essentially uses his power to do to the Sunni, in essence, what the Sunni had done to the Shia under Saddam Hussein. Uh, Perhaps not as brutally, but certainly using patronage and corruption to advantage the Shia population against the Sunni in the government. And we basically were supporting that as part of this. I mean, we haven't mentioned Obama, who also was supporting Nur al-Maliki for a time period and encouraging him. Now, at the same time, remember that Obama wanted to get out. Yeah. And there's the big debate about whether getting out was good or bad. We need to remember that the Bush administration actually negotiated the time to leave. And the Iraqis didn't want us there. So there wasn't much of a debate. Barack Obama was essentially on the side of what both had already negotiated when he comes into office. You, you can't assume that we can stay in a country that doesn't want us there very long without much force. And Barack Obama wasn't interested in doing that. So picking up on what you said about not being able to stay in a country that doesn't want us there, mm-hmm. do you see a way forward for our continued involvement in the region? It depends on what you mean by a way forward. I mean, I think that whoever the next president's going to be is going to face really what I think are the the three big issues. One is sectarianism, which we've talked about. You're going to have to figure out how you try to bring some stability back to the region. The reality is you you can't bring up a perfect situation. You can't end Syria. Okay. Only the Syrians can end Syria. If, if people want to continue to fight, they're going to continue to fight. And, um, you know, I, I guess we could put troops on the ground if you really wanted to, but it would take massive amounts of troops, and it would take uh, massive amounts of troops for an extended period of time being there in order to essentially enforce stability. And I don't think that's what we're talking about or anybody is talking about really in the, in the political world. Um, So sectarianism is the first issue. The second issue is Israel-Palestine. A lot of people argue that if you can move the Israeli-Palestinian peace process forward, you move other issues forward. In other words, you bring stability to the region because you're bringing the reputation of the U.S., you're creating goodwill among Israelis and Arabs, and and frankly, uh, the Obama administration's record on Israel and Palestine is not very good. Uh, there hasn't been any movement on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process uh, in those eight years. So the next president has to has that issue. And the third issue is the Iran deal and the question of Iran. Now, from the Obama administration's perspective, you are reaching out to a country that has been one of the countries that has been a catalyst for a lot of that sectarianism because Iran is the Shia leader. Saudi Arabia, on the other side, is the Sunni leader, and we've generally allied with Saudi Arabia in the past. From the Obama administration, this is, this is a way to try to cultivate both sides 
to bring about more stability in the region. That if you only side with one side, you're only from, you know, creating more torment um, throughout the region. So my simple answer is, is there a way forward? Maybe, but it's very complicated. Okay. It's not a simple, okay, let's, let's use force if Iran breaks the deal, or let's use force in Syria. It's not that simple. This is much more complicated. It requires a nuanced approach that will have diplomacy, economics, uh, perhaps military force involved in some way, but it can't be a one-size-fits-all for the region uh, in any way whatsoever. Well, you heard it here first. The Middle East is complicated. All right. Dr. Michael Cairo. Thank you for listening. We'll have a new interview podcast out each Monday that you can listen to at transyrambler.com. Our topics will cover just about anything you can think of that affects the transy community. If you have suggestions for either people to interview or topics for us to cover, you can email them to rambler at transy.edu with the subject line podcast. If you're a musician and would like to have your music featured on the podcast, email us at rambler at transy.edu with the subject line podcast music. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, contact us at rambler at transy.edu using the subject line sponsor. The preceding podcast was a production of Rambler Media. Our editor-in-chief is Megan Graft. Our managing editor is Madison Crater. Our creative director is Tyler Lega. Our head producer is Brandon Trapp, and I'm Tristan Reynolds. Thank you for listening.